0: One family that I talked to, the four year old was separated for a few months, but the mother says the child was still asking after they were reunited, are the men going to come and take me away again? And I think that's likely to be repeated over and over.
1: I'm Sandy Santana, Executive Director of Children's Rights. I was honored to sit down with Lee Glernt from the ACLU and talk about his work on the government's family separation policy. Lee told me that in 25 years of doing this work he's never seen a policy this cruel. When Lee talks about the thousands of children and families separated, you can feel the passion and drive he brought to stopping this policy and making sure it never happens again. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here with Lee Guilern, uh, Deputy Director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project and the person who really shouldered the burden of reuniting uh, families who were separated at the border. And and first, uh, from a grateful CR and really a a grateful nation, thank you, thank you for doing that work. Thank you
0: for having me and thank you for everything you've done on this issue and I'm sure we'll get into that
1: more. Absolutely, so let let me take you back to um, February of this year. That's when you brought the Mrs. L versus ICE case before this issue was really on the national radar. When did you first become aware that children were becoming separated from their families at the border at a a big scale? Right. Well, so last fall, about a year ago, we started
0: hearing that there may be families separated. And then what happened was the administration had a few high-profile interviews with CNN, with the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they said, we're considering considering enacting a formal policy of separating families at the border. And everyone was sort of went to sleep on it because they said, well, they're only considering it. That means they're probably not doing it. Mm-hmm. But we started hearing over the fall and through the holidays that it was actually happening on the ground. And there were advocates who were following it um, and who had been telling us it appears to be happening. We then started hearing even more reports in January. In February, I heard about a woman from the Congo, Ms., who goes by Miss L, in our lawsuit and became the lead plaintiff, that she had been separated from her then six-year-old child for about four months. So I went out to visit her in a detention center on the border in San Diego, and I heard her story, and she had lost an enormous amount of weight, hadn't been sleeping, was distraught and told me that she had come from the Congo. She had had a harrowing journey with her then six-year-old daughter through ten countries, often walking barefoot for miles and miles, eating out of garbage cans, begging for money, finally got to the US-Mexico border in San Diego and applied for asylum and critically she did not cross the border illegally. I mean, that's the narrative that's been put out by the administration. Mm -hmm. We only took children if the parent crossed the border illegally. She presented herself lawfully and said, I'd like to apply for asylum for me and my daughter. She, in fact, passed the initial asylum screening. She was housed with her daughter in a motel, a makeshift detention center motel for four days. This is all her recounting the story to me. And she, she, then was brought to immigration offices and at that point, this was on their fourth day, they told the daughter, the daughter needed to come in an adjacent room, the mother was handcuffed and the mother described hearing her daughter screaming, Mom, don't let them take me away, they're taking me away. The daughter hysterical, screaming and the mother was just helpless. She didn't find out where the daughter had gone for four days, hadn't spoke to the daughter for four days. They took the daughter all the way to Chicago, Again, the daughter was only six. She finally got to speak to her daughter at the fourth day. Needless to say, they were hysterical. Um, Every ten days or so she got to speak to her daughter for a few minutes, and they had already been separated for four months. The daughter celebrated her seventh birthday all alone in a Chicago facility. And although we knew that there were likely hundreds of families that had been separated at that point, this was late February, we decided that we needed to bring a lawsuit immediately for this woman because she was in such bad shape and that we we needed a few more weeks to build the national class action. And as you all know from doing major class actions, that takes time. So we brought the suit initially on her behalf and then took a few more weeks to make it a national class action, but ultimately she became the lead plaintiff in the national class action. And at the time we filed the lawsuit, uh, the national class action lawsuit in the beginning of March, we believed that there were four to five hundred families that had already been separated, and an enormous number, yeah. but ultimately what we saw was that thousands would get separated. When we had oral argument, and I stood up for oral argument, In May, the beginning of May, the New York Times had reported that there were 700 families who had been separated. By the time we won the case, which was the end of June, and received the national class injunction, there were roughly 3,000 families who had been separated. So there were a lot of advocates doing work. We supplied the litigation piece. And I think what everyone saw over time was that the issue became an enormous public issue, that there was public outcry from all corners. And I think that's one of the things the administration underestimated, is that there would be an outcry from not just Democrats and liberals, but conservatives and Republicans who said, wait, wait, we don't agree with the ACLU on all fronts in the immigration area, but this is just a step too far. I mean, we saw babies four months, five months old being dragged from their parents and sent to government facilities just thousands of young children being taken away, spending months and months in government facilities. The the stories were absolutely horrible. And when we started litigating, I made two principal calls when we we knew we were gonna bring the lawsuit. One were to doctors through the American Pediatrics Association because we knew we were gonna need to show the trauma that separating these families was going to cause and likely permanent trauma. So we put in roughly, in the beginning, ten affidavits from well-known doctors all over the country who deal with trauma, explaining that you're potentially going to harm these children for the rest of their lives. The other call I made was to children's rights. And what I explained to children's rights is, and they of course had been hearing about the issue, but I explained to them that because in the immigration area the rights of non-citizens, especially at the border, are not always the same as citizens, we were going to need to make a very forceful showing that these non-citizens should enjoy constitutional rights, that we were going to need to give the court a clear sense of what would happen in the normal context with citizens, and then we would have to argue that that should be extended to non-citizens. And what I needed from children's rights was their expertise but also their clout with other children's groups to organize an amicus brief on behalf of dozens of national children's rights groups and fortunately children's rights jumped in wrote a fantastic brief explaining that you could never take a child away from a parent unless the parent is shown through some process to be a danger to that child or in some way unfit and so Children's Rights, you all wrote a fantastic brief, but as importantly, we're able to get all the major children's rights groups to sign on to that brief, and that brief ended up being a critical part of the litigation because the judge recognized that what the government, the Trump administration, was doing here was so far afield from best practices in child welfare area that the government needed an enormously powerful justification to do this. And when the government couldn't come forward with it, that's when we were able to win the case.
1: Well, we were obviously enormously proud to partner with you in in that endeavor and and for this cause. And and as a parent, I know you feel this. um, You don't have to be a parent to feel this very viscerally, but when you have children, you understand what separation means. Yeah,
0: I would say in my 25-plus years of doing this work that... um, This is the worst practice I've seen. And I've seen obviously a lot of bad practices and so have you. And I do think, I mean, I think the Washington Post early on described it as just gratuitous cruelty. And I think that's absolutely right because to the extent the administration thought that it was going to deter families from coming, that clearly was wrong because the families are making life and death decisions to leave their country or otherwise they're going to be tortured, killed. And so they're going to come anyway. And when I would meet with families, I would ask them, so if you had only known that your child was going to be taken away when you got here, would you have come anyway? And they invariably threw up their arms and shrugged and said, well, what choice did I have? It would have been worse to stay. Um, But plus, even if it were a deterrent, it was so inhumane. And, you know, you brought up your own children. I think for me as well, having two boys, I could not get that out of my mind, sort of how unbearable it would have been to see my boys dragged away. They're already traumatized from coming to another country and being dragged away helpless and being sent to some unknown place and me not knowing how they were doing and having no power to to help them.
1: One thing that was clear to us, and I'm sure it was clear to you, is that when reunification was ordered, when Judge Saburo ordered reunification, um, there was really no plan. Um, that the federal government had put in place and it fits and starts and um, not a very well-oiled machine to the detriment of, of children's health. Um, what is the state of play now? How has that progressed? We've been following the numbers. Where are we right.
0: now? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what seems to be clear and what startled, I think, the judge, and I think startled me as well, My, you know, my wife says I'm just naive and I should have understood <laughs> it, is that... The government really didn't have a plan. And not only that, but they weren't actually keeping track of where the families were going. And so the judge at one point said, you know, I think the United States government keeps better track of property than they have of these families. And so the government could not piece together where all the families were. And so it took forever to get the families reunified. We are now, I think, In the range of between about 300 or so families that haven't been reunited and so you know we are extremely pleased that roughly 2200 parents and children have been reunited there are more to go uh, but it's just taken way too long and as the medical community predicted every day that the children are separated is causing them trauma and so for them to be separated for so many months and so i think there's going to be a feeling of among some circles that Oh, well, all the families are reunited. The problem is over. Okay. But in some ways, the problem is just starting for these families. The trauma that's set in. I mean, one family that I talked to, the four year old was separated for a few months, but the mother says the child was still asking after they were reunited, are the men going to come and take me away again? Goodness. And I think that's likely to be repeated over and over in family households. The other dynamic we're seeing which the medical community also predicted, is that the relationship between parent and child has been completely distorted. Mm -hmm. That a lot of the children now are angry and resentful toward their parents because they're too young to understand their parents couldn't stop it. So they were literally watching their parents. As the the children are being dragged away, they're begging with their eyes Mm -hmm. for their parents to stop it. And the parents were helpless to stop Mm -hmm. them being dragged away. And they're just asking, you know, mommy, daddy, why didn't you stop these men from doing this to me? Why didn't you come get me? Is it because you don't love me? Why did you not try harder and not being old enough to understand? And so we're seeing a lot of resentment from the children once they're reunited. Mm You know, as horrible as this sounds, there's some children who were so young that when they were taken away for months, they don't even recognize their parents when they come back. So this is is a horrendous situation, and it's ongoing. And the unfortunate thing is that even after the judge said the policy was brutal, offensive, and unconstitutional, you would have hoped the administration would have said, okay, we made a mistake, we're going to do everything we can to fix it. every step of this litigation they have fought us. At one point, they said to the judge, Your Honor, we don't think we can pay for all the children to be reunited with their parents. We may have to ask the parents to pay to be reunited with their Mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. The government had enough money and resources to take the children away and fly them all over the country, but then was saying if the parents want the child back, the judge fortunately put his foot down. At another point, the government said, We've deported about 400 parents without their children. We don't know where all those parents are. The ACLU should find those parents. The, the burden judge, shifting. Exactly, the burden shifting. The judge said, absolutely not. You created this mess. You bear ultimate responsibility. The ACLU and its partners will help you find these children if you give them the information, but you are not washing your hands. But it's at every step this has happened where the government's tried to wash their hands of it. And at some points, the government has even gone so far as to say, Your Honor, we are very proud of the efforts we've made to reunify, as if this was some natural disaster and the government's jumped in to help. They created it. They created it,
1: absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, one of the, the difficult things about that is that, on the one hand, the government's responsible, but the advocacy community knows the effect of this trauma and the need to reunify these parents as quickly as possible. Exactly. with their children and, and those who have been deported. I read the following quote um, and I thought it was funny uh, and it was about you in Guatemala and it said a rumpled Uh-oh. New York lawyer in <laughs> khakis and a pinstripe shirt standing incongruously in the shaded plaza central of Chimaltenango, Guatemala. So I, I thought it was right. funny but it, it, sh- it shows the efforts the advocacy community and the ACLU is making on its own yeah for
0: sure when this all started happening i did not anticipate that i would be in guatemala (laughs) um yeah the rumpled was probably right it was a long day and um you
1: you also had no socks on at a hearing i read about that
0: (laughs) in fairness to me i always had socks on but this case has really you know sort of blown up and The first hearing we had, not the first, the first hearing we had was when we argued the merits of the case and we ultimately won. But after we won the judge said I want everyone to come out to San Diego to talk about the plan to reunify the children now that I've ordered that. And I went out there for a Friday hearing and I went out late Thursday and we were going to have a hearing Friday morning and I was supposed to take the red eye back Friday night and the judge said no I want to see everyone back Monday And then he said, I want to see like Wednesday. And we were very pleased with that because we felt like the only way to get all this done was for the judge to have really a hands-on role. But I had brought clothes only for one (laughs) night, so I ended up being out there for two weeks and just going to the store continuously to buy more socks and underwear. (laughs) And so it became like I was a sock player, but I always managed to have clean socks to be in court. Beyond that, beyond that, I'm not know, <laughs> <this close> <laughs> Right, right, but it's, you know, it's just, I, I felt in my heart for having done this, this work a long time, that this was going to be a big deal, mm-hmm. and I was saying it to people in the beginning, and I think people thought, hmm, this is bad, but, I, you know, I couldn't really get through to people, sort of the magnitude of it, and then I think at one point, it just sort of blew up, and then became, like, the issue mm-hmm. in the country. Um, And I think it was probably a combination of a lot of things. The numbers were increasing. I think some of the the people's stories got out there. There was the children crying on the tape. There were families being profiled. Because as you know, doing this work, there's the abstract policy, and sometimes you'll convince people with those arguments, statistics, abstract policy. But ultimately, it's putting a human face on it. And until you put a human face on it, people don't care but once I think we were able to put a human face on it people came from everywhere Mm -hmm. opposing it and were repulsed by what was going on that Mm -hmm. four-month-old, five-month-old kids were being dragged away Um, and I think you know if there can be a legacy from this case Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that it's people won't turn away from these issues. I I argued the first Muslim ban Case in Brooklyn, the f- first day after was um, uh, enacted, and there was enormous outcry, and everyone thought it's going to last forever, mm-hmm. but it didn't. Of course, there's just too many issues going on, and the energy it takes to sustain that, and I also think that was slightly different than this because I think the line split along more ideological mm-hmm. with the travel ban, but. What I was pleased about, and I think the administration was hoping it wouldn't happen, is that everyone got re-engaged with family separation. My hope is that now people stay vigilant and say, wait, there may be macro immigration policy issues that we don't agree with the ACLU or other groups on, but there are certain things we don't want being done in our name, the public's name, and I'm hoping people stay vigilant because this is not going to be the last horrific policy we see from this administration, so if that can be a legacy of this case, that there is sustained vigilance from the American public, Mm -hmm. that will be important.
1: Terrific. Well, Lee Galernt, we are also very grateful to you for all your work. Um, I know how difficult it is to read the stories of children who have experienced, and families who have experienced trauma, even more difficult to interact with those families when their lives are falling apart. And um, we're so grateful to you for doing that essential thank, work.
0: Thank you, Sandy. And thank you for all your help on the
1: case and for all the great work that Children's Rights does. Thank you. And we look forward to honoring you for your work on October 16th at our annual benefit. I'm looking forward to it. I'm flattered. Thank, thank you, you so much, Lee. That was Lee Deputy Director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. Learn more about Children's Rights on our website at www.childrensrights.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.